Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? We are really excited to talk to you today. We got a fun one. Oh, yes, indeed. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 124 of Baltimoreans, the show that, like Mass and broadcaster Jim Palmer, likes to pepper our commentary with imaginative wordplay. Because if he makes a good throw, it's an easy out. Tillman was easily there. But got it, dropped his arm a little bit, ball tailed, and it's pretty much the tail of this inning. <laughs> Yet another gem from the lips of that man. Folks, in just a few minutes, we're going to get on the phone with NBC Sports' Craig Calcaterra, one of the most reliably insightful sports writers covering the game of baseball. He wrote recently about the culture of corporate, white-collar conservatism that seems to govern baseball despite its constantly shifting demographics, and we'll dig into that idea as well as a few others with him on the show tonight. Now, speaking of harsh work environments, that in no way describes the consistently affable and charming nature of the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we're a proud member, alongside our Sister Wife podcasts. Although no one has heard from Dean Eastlake in quite some time, so we're a little bit worried that Zach has him working in shifts. <laughs> Either that, or he's, he's figured out a way to save the world via banjo, <laughs> which I'm actually hoping is, is what's going on. Now, ladies and gentlemen, no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without the customarily brilliant ruminations of my esteemed co-host, Alan Smith, to whom I am proud to introduce you once again. Because episode 124 of Baltimoreans is an auspicious episode. Why? Well, it starts with the fact that Americans spent $70.15 billion on lottery tickets last year according to the North American Association of State and Provincial Lotteries. $70 billion. Now, that is a big number. That's more than we spent, Sam, on music, sports, books, and video games as a country during that same calendar year. It is such a big number, in fact, that it gets hard to really understand how big a number it is. $70 billion. How do you How do you comprehend that? And it also amounts to one of the largest taxes on poor people that we have in America. Wait a second, you might be saying, out there in Baltimore's land. The poor don't pay taxes. You're talking about that 47% that Mitt Romney says are not contributing and are thus not going to be interested in his message of job creation. And yet, that $70 billion is coming way more from the poor than the wealthy. Multiple studies confirm that the average income of people who play the lottery regularly are using it as a prayer against poverty. And I do not need to tell you, Baltimoreans, that the statistical chance that their prayer is going to be answered is about the same as the number of games that Matt Wieters has appeared in an Orioles uniform this year. But Alan, you might be saying, don't the proceeds of many lottery systems go to a good cause? Schools! You would be correct, imaginary person that I'm using to team me up for answers to a one-sided conversation? They certainly are. And I'm not here to argue with the results. Lotteries set aside about 40% of their ticket sales as state revenue that often does go to schools. 40% is, of course, not 100%, but my real problem here is that this means that the lottery is effectively a super-regressive tax, 
coming from a group that is less able to pay and wholly lacking in an organized force to lobby against the lottery as a concept. But let me get back to why episode 124 is so auspicious. Because 124 will help us understand exactly how large the number 70.15 billion really is. According to Forbes magazine, the Baltimore Orioles are worth just north of $600 million. The entire organization, from Adam Jones's 1,000-watt smile all the way to the dude stacking caps in a warehouse on Utah Street, is valued at just north of $600 million. That number is almost exactly 124 times smaller than the income of the lottery. That's right, if you had the proceeds of the lottery in 2015, you could buy the Orioles 124 times over and still have enough change to stop by Boogs for a god dang sandwich. Now, you might not know this, Baltimoreans, but Sam and I have a plan to buy the Baltimore Orioles. We don't talk about it much, more than once an episode, so you might not have heard about it before, but I will say, this news makes me think that we've been going about this all wrong. We need to start a lottery, where everyone has a chance of being the owner of the Orioles. Then, when we raise so much more money than the team is actually worth, we can make a godfather offer to whoever wins the actual draw, keep enough money in the piggy bank to get Mike Trout when he hits the free agent market, and cut Peter Angelos a pretty sizable retirement check. He's a businessman, Sam. He would like this. Let's get him on the phone. Let's do this. I want you to know, Baltimoreans, that I was excited for this episode 124 before the article about the lottery appeared in the Atlantic magazine a few days ago. So I would like to say, while Derek Thompson in that article did a much better job of bringing up the social justice ramifications of the lottery than I just did, I did plan on talking about this before that article dropped. You're going to have to trust me that that's the case. Well, folks, as we told you at the top of the show, we are about to get on the phone with Craig Calcaterra, who writes a daily blog for NBC Sports' Hardball Talk that is a must-read if you are interested in not just blow-by-blow coverage of the most exciting turns of events in our beloved Major League Baseball over the previous night, but also some of the larger, more interesting cultural trends that go on in the game. And if you're listening to this show and you don't enjoy commentary on larger cultural trends, you are a strange person who could be spending (laughs) your time more wisely. Now that some of our audience has tuned out. (laughs) We're very thrilled to be joined on the phone by Mr. Craig Calcaterra. Thank you for having me, Baltimoreans. Our first question for you is about a piece that you put up today on NBC's Hardball Talk in which you wrote about the ways in which baseball's professional ladder is similar to the corporate structures we're familiar with at many fairly conservative businesses. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on why that might be doing harm to baseball's efforts to recruit more diverse players in youth leagues? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a one-to-one necessarily. That that conversation all came up. uh, uh, There was a story over at vicesports.com uh, about, uh, you know, baseball isn't fun. There's not flamboyance, <laughs> bat flips and things like that are frowned upon. They play the game the right way sort of ethic. And uh, Brandon Phillips, for one, who they interviewed, uh, second baseman for the for the Reds, 
said that that sort of no fun allowed kind of attitude is what's keeping kids away. Uh, I think that might be part of it. It's, you, you know, view yourself as being able to be yourself or, or, or have a great personality in baseball. Maybe you are geared a little bit more towards football, basketball, something like that. I don't know if that's necessarily the reason, uh, the big reason why kids aren't playing baseball at younger and younger ages. I think there are a lot of other things going on with that. Uh, the, the cost of baseball, traveling leagues, things like that is sure. a big one. Uh, but but I do think that the culture of baseball sort of makes it way harder to be an individual than than any other sport, not just because of attitudes at the major league level, but the way you advance in baseball. There's a huge number of washouts in baseball compared to the other sports in between the time that you're drafted and the time that you can make your mark professionally. You you have to go through the minor leagues unless you're an absolute, absolute stud you are going to be in the minor leagues for quite a few years. And uh, the way you advance is, yes, good performance, but you also need to sort of fit the culture. There are a lot of ways uh, where your advancement can sort of be frustrated. If you are equally good as another player, if you are seen as someone who uh, has maybe not the best attitude or makeup is uh, words that you hear a lot, if you stick out a lot in in a culture of conformity, uh, you know, you might not appeal to the 50 something year old white man who is uh, working in the front office and making decisions. And, you know, it's like that Simpsons episode where Homer wears the pink shirt. You know, that's very, <laughs> very shocking to everyone. And uh, so if you're a bat flipper, if you dance around the bases, if you are a little bit eccentric, you better be really, really damn good in order to advance. Well, I think we like to tell ourselves in Baltimore a story that Dan Duquette is hipper than most, but. If we're honest with ourselves, <laughs> he is—he's uh, just as square as the rest of them, and uh, I don't think Buck Showalter really enjoys uh, outward shows of eccentricity either. Yeah, I think Buck's gotten better than back in his uh, previous stints with other teams, and uh, you know, even when Adam Jones came right over, he—he he was, you know, Adam Jones on football field would just look like, you know a guy with a crew cut and, and straight lace, but in baseball, he's—he's he's what passes for flamboyance. <laughs> he's you know? wild. And, uh, Oh, he's crazy. I mean, he <laughs> blows bubbles. Oh, my God. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do agree that, you know, Buck Showalter is about as old school as it comes. And even if Dan Duquette is really cool, it's, you know, they're all baseball men. Baseball is filled with baseball men who are all taught that you keep your head down and put your nose to the dirt or grindstone or wherever you're supposed to put your nose. But it's also really interesting to me that how much that's also rank and file players. I mean, like you said in the article, I guess it's because they've kind of had to conform to that to make it through the minor leagues. But we see all the time a pitcher throwing at, I mean, uh, what's his name from the Phillies who threw at Bryce Harper for, I guess, being Bryce Harper and daring oh, to... Oh, Cole Hamels? Yeah, Cole Hamels when he was throwing it at Harper like early on. It, it seems as though there's a lot of uh, a player-on-player enforcement of the unwritten rules as well that, that seems to be hard to figure out how to get around. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not just the system that does it to players. I mean, a lot of these players self-select to be those kind of guys. I mean, baseball, American baseball players overwhelmingly come from the South, uh, from rural areas, from yeah. places where conformity is a little bit more the norm. Uh, I mean, they're athletes anyway. I mean, I, I wasn't much of a high school athlete, but you know, high school athletes were a little bit more straight laced than, you know, the drama kids, for example. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of that. And that whole idea of, 
you're not supposed to have a personality until you've been around a while. The only thing I don't like about the uh, the movie Bull Durham is the uh, the shower <laughs> the shower speech. sandal speech. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, man, let your freak flag fly when you're a rookie too. Who cares? But you know, that's the attitude there. Is Bryce Harper at the time had not earned the right to to I don't know breathe, exist, do anything but genuflect <laughs> before veterans and and Cole Hamill's doggone it, he was going to show him. <laughs> so you you're on record as being um, pro bat flip. Oh yeah, I would I would give them extra runs. <laughs> okay. Well, you know we we are at a crossroads right now. We are the, the bat flip lobby needs to have a meeting soon to figure <laughs> out who our standard bearer is. Yasiel Puig has uh, has abandoned our cause. He yeah. uh, in the middle of April gave an interview that said now now this is part of the general overall rebranding of Yasiel Puig. Uh, I think he sort of realized or someone around him has realized that it'd be better for you just to sort of like chill out for a little bit. And, and part of that chilling out started in spring training. I was in Arizona at uh, Camelback where the, where the Dodgers train. I'm in the clubhouse one day there. They have his locker right next to Adrian Gonzalez. There's a reason for that. Yeah, you know, right. we got a, we got a staple veteran next to you. And then, uh, Oh my God, I'm going to mangle the quote, but there's a Wee Reese quote that they have painted on the wall right above Yasiel Puig's locker, and I'm sure it is not an accident. And it's something like, you know, the effect of the quote is, shut up and, and play right or something. It's not that <laughs> right. severe, but it's basically, you know, your actions speak louder than your words and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of the rebranding. But Puig said he's not going to flip bats anymore. He said he might, you know, if he's genuinely excited or something, but he's going to try to put a lid on it. Now, not coincidentally, it was that very day that he hurt his hamstring that oh, that story see? came out, and he's only guys. played like two games since. I, I know you just don't mess with forces you can't control, young man, and and that's kind of the problem. So right now we're we're kind of in trouble. There's somebody who flipped one really well. Like Harper flipped one yep. last week when he was on that home run tear. Uh, so he might be the standard bearer right now. Is there <laughs> is there any research to indicate that when Adrian Beltre falls down from swinging so hard that it might be somewhat affected? Because I'd be willing to accept that if so. <laughs> you know what. I, I have been fascinated by Adrian Beltre's home run lunge for a long time, and, and <laughs> before I noticed it with Beltre, I'm a Braves fan, so I, I you know watch a lot of Braves games. And uh, back right right before Andrew Jones had that 50 home run season that sort of mm-hmm. came out of nowhere, he always had a little bit of power, but he had that 50 home run season. He really altered his swing, and he did this big knee deep bend like like Beltre does uh-huh. and that was really helping him and then all of a sudden he just fell off a cliff and I'm sure it was because he messed up his mechanics doing that kind of stuff and over swinging but there's got to be something there that at least for a while uh, Jones had and Beltre's managed to master. <laughs> what well, also occurs to me just to go back to your point quickly about putting Puig next to Adrian Gonzalez to grind the fun out of him. I, I don't know if <laughs> and I don't know if anyone looks like they're having less fun when they're playing baseball than Adrian Gonzalez. Oh, I'll, I'll agree with that. Now, now, part of this is, I think, unfair. Part of it's an eyebrow sculpting issue because he <laughs> looks perpetually angry, and I haven't been close enough to him to see if he threads, but I think he might. And uh, so, you know, he's just got this countenance of a, of a bit of an angry man. But you're right. There's not a lot of joy in Mudville for Adrian Gonzalez. He's a great player. I love him. But, uh, yeah, he never seems to be, you know, just infused with the spirit of baseball. So to change change courses slightly, you also have a, a personal blog at craigcalcaterra.tumblr.com. And in mm-hmm. a recent piece, you wrote about the theft of some barrels of the legendary Pappy Van Winkle whiskey. Um, and you used the phrase, 
exclusivity after effect in that story, which if I understand you correctly, you meant to say that the production and marketing campaigns around Pappy Van Winkle create a certain sheen of superiority that might not necessarily be 100% based on its actual flavor profile. Uh, Would it be too much to stretch to suggest that there might be some franchises or players in the major leagues that benefit from this exclusivity effect? Or either oh, historically yeah. or, or just, just the season at this moment? The Montreal Expos. <laughs> I, like, I, I'm old enough. I'm, I'm like almost 42 years old, and I've been watching baseball for a long, long time. So I, I was there when the Expos existed. It's not just some like quaint, nostalgic right. memory. I, <laughs> I was an NL East fan for many years while the Expos existed. No one, no one gave a crap about the Expos. I mean, no one. I mean... I, Jonah Carey comes by it honestly. Jonah <laughs> Carey, you know, he's from he's from Montreal. He's the real deal. But there is like this halo effect around Expos, and everybody, you know, you see guys wearing Expos shirts. No one was buying Expos shirts outside right. of Montreal. Oh yeah, you know, until a couple of years ago. So I think there's something of that. There's nostalgia fits into it, but also the fact that you can't now call BS on the beauty and wonder of Expos baseball because it really is BS when people talk about that. There were some right. really great players that played in Montreal. But uh, that, I think they, they are, yeah, they are the Pappy Van Winkle. They are the Pliny the Elder. They are the In-N-Out Burger of Major <laughs> oh, League Baseball. Oh wow! <laughs> all good one. things. I mean, they're all all good things, but maybe not quite as good as their rarity makes them uh, out sure. to be. Exactly, sure. exactly. There is uh, our show is based in Brooklyn, and which there's... makes perfect sense for a Baltimore themed. Uh... <laughs> yeah, don't don't think too oh, hard about it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but there's uh, there's a restaurant called Bonnie's, which is locally famous for its uh, wings and burgers. And the guy who runs it wears an Expos hat. So I just always assumed that he must have been a huge Larry Walker fan. And it turns out uh, that he is not an Expos fan at all. He just likes the design on the hat. <laughs> <laughs> I can't throw too much shade at that because uh, I'm a bald man. <laughs> and I like hats. And for whatever reason, I I, uh, I I only really wear like the new era 5950s, like the official baseball caps. Like although uh, any other cap looks terrible on me, I've got a giant head and those work. And I've taken to getting hats from a zillion different teams. I don't just wear like Braves caps for what people. My my Twitter avatar more than an Indians hat. I don't even like the Indians. Um, <laughs> It just I like the hat, and so there are. And your name starts hats. with a C. It makes sense. A little bit, yeah. So th- there is there are several hats that I own that I bought primarily for you know the logo and stuff, which I think that skews me a little hipster. But I don't own an Expos hat. <laughs> you have to draw certain lines in the sand. <laughs> right. So in another post on your Tumblr page, you discuss the drift of journalism towards what you call snackable content. And oh, yeah. yeah, which was a great post. And uh, it reminded me of a post that you wrote on Hardball Talk last year, which I believe was keyed to the news item which involved independent baseball podcasts being shut down temporarily by Major League Baseball. And oh, yeah. you at that time talked about the need for independent voices in sports media to focus on what kind of unique offering they can contribute instead of bemoaning their lack of a press credential. And in this piece about uh, snackable content, you talk about how journalists need to adapt to the new world order rather than just complaining about the fact that things have changed. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see this issue taking shape in baseball coverage in particular going forward? I think what motivates all those things is um, I think access is overrated. Um, And what I I mean by that is the model of 
baseball and all sports journalism, which has existed for a long time, of you're at the park, you go down, you talk to the athlete, you write your story, and you interweave the athlete's quotes or the manager's quotes with your stuff. It's it's highly unilluminating, if that's even proper English. It, it <laughs> It's become such a cliche. The athletes and the managers and everybody else know what they're going to say. Uh, they are highly trained now uh, to not really say anything and certainly not to say anything controversial. Um, you're just not doing much for readers, I don't think. I mean, yeah, there are guys that do it well. And, and I think that talking to athletes and stuff, if you're Tyler Kepner of the New York Times and you have relationships with these guys and you can breathe a little bit and write stories rather than just justify the fact that you have quotes and build around a quote – um, you can do some good journalism. I think a lot of the stuff is there. But for the most part, I don't get the idea of people coming new to baseball journalism who want to do that. Just this week, I was in Cincinnati. I got a press credential. I went to a Reds-Braves game. I don't do that very often. I do it like for the World Series. I do it for spring training. I'll do a couple games a year. You know, I, I've been blogging professionally for like six years. I've been doing this since 2007. Uh, you know, I work for a big media company, so I can kind of get in there where I want. It would take me... 10 years of being a beat writer around these teams to have the same sort of relationship with the athletes that guys who have been doing it for a while have. They're there every single day. Baseball players don't want to talk to me. I mean, they're nice. They're polite. I got a couple guys to talk to me and stuff, but you're not going to do anything interesting with, with access the way someone who does it every day is. That's not what your value proposition is going to be if you have a podcast or if you have a blog or, or whatever. You just need to find new ways to relate. And I, I think bypassing the old models is a way to go. I think most of the news breaking is kind of lame anyway. I mean, I know there's this big thing now with with people breaking scoops that don't really have traditional media access. Guys like Chris Cotillo with uh, SB Nation. A lot of the last winter we had a bunch of like high school kids, like literally kids in high school that were like breaking scoops because, I don't know, their dad knew an agent or something. <laughs> you know, that kind of – I think literally that's how it happens. It's kind of strange. And – that kind of news is not, I mean, it's interesting because we all want to know who's signing where and all that, but it's also news that teams are increasingly bypassing the media for and they're announcing it themselves. Yeah. And, you know, the, the daily lineup, the injuries, the, you don't need a reporter there. there it's just, it's, it, the, the term that I've used for that is commodity news. It's just immediately as it's reported, it makes no difference who reported it. It's just public information. It's just out there. There's a million people doing that. What you need to do is find an interesting way to talk about the game, relate to readers or, or listeners, uh, and and own it as a fan or own it as an independent voice and, and just be more creative about it. I think we're still in very 20th century media models, and uh, we're in a 21st century technological world, and, and we need to sort of adapt to that a little bit better. I think you can also really extrapolate that out to political media. I mean, I think that the White oh, yeah. House, like the White House press room was for such a long period of time, such a prestigious posting because you were closer to some version of the truth. And that's now it's as far as I can understand, it's sort of like you get stuck there. You go, you go there to die. You do anything you can to get out <laughs> of unless you're in the first row. Maybe mm-hmm. you try to do whatever you can to get out of the White House press room. And I, and I feel like the other forms of news also have not yet quite caught up to what it is that we're adding other than kind of copying and pasting what the New York Times headline is and putting a local spin on it. It seems like it's something that more than just sports journalism has not figured out. I think maybe political stuff is a little bit ahead. Not much. It's a little bit ahead. This could be subjective on my part in that I 
have sort of approached what I do and my blog and everything, I, I've modeled it very much after what political bloggers from seven, eight, ten years ago were doing. I mean, stuff uh-huh. like, you know, Andrew Sullivan originally. Sullivan, right. I mean, I sort of, I got my problems with Andrew Sullivan, but I, my model is very <laughs> similar to his. Hell of a blogger. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely prolific and, and whatever, definitely gets conversation started. And, you know, so the idea of a blogger interacting with traditional media, critiquing other stories uh, that come out of mainstream media, maybe questioning uh, opinions and analysis from other political writers, that's kind of established. Like, it's expected. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you, are, if, you are a, if you are a columnist for, uh, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times, you, you don't act as if, I mean, maybe some do, but most of them don't act as if anyone questioning your authority and your opinion is somehow a transgression or some <laughs> sort of faux pas. I mean, it's just that you throw your opinion out there and it's in the marketplace of ideas and it gets a little chippy, but that's what happens. I mean, I think that's accepted very much in political discourse and social discourse. In sports, it's still very much not accepted. I mean, we yeah. still, I very, on a, 10 times a year, find myself in these crazy conversations on Twitter with reporters questioning my questioning of other media. I've never gotten... <laughs> I've never gotten personal. I've never said that guy's dumb. I've never issued ad hominem attacks. When a reporter has put out an opinion, I will find issue with the opinion. I will say why it's not the best opinion, why this is a better way to look at it. And I am still routinely told that that is rude. Who the hell are you? It's ridiculous how, uh, I mean, I, there was, it was pretty public. It was like a month or two ago. And I'm, I'm actually friends with Jeff Passan from Yahoo. Um, Uh, and it wasn't even about his stuff. Yeah. There was a Washington times columnist who said, you know, basically wrote the equivalent of Max Scherzer doesn't have the will to win because he didn't win on opening day, even though he only gave up like one run and you really got to win those games. You got to want it. It was like the dumbest, like 15 years ago column you've ever seen (laughs) and just for attention. And so I, if I issued a mild criticism of that, pass in it's like you know what i don't get this whole go after other writers thing i'm like well no that's an objectively stupid opinion that he put out there that's just like demonstrably wrong and it fails to understand baseball or it is cynically trying to get people who don't understand baseball to go yeah you're right and it's red meat it's it's dumb but there's but this whole host of people including like a new york times writer and a bunch of other guys they just get on my back about why on earth would you possibly take issue with that i'm like that's how all knowledge advances yeah. You, you take and critique things. I mean, I, I went to law school. Yeah, that, I practiced law for 11 years. The Socratic method is, you know, it's it, it's from freaking Socrates. Put out an <laughs> idea and, and question it. And if Socrates can do it, I think a dumb sports writer can do it. Well, it sounds like maybe we need to move your locker next to one of these dumb sports writers so you can, <laughs> uh, you know, learn some respect. <laughs> oh, you know what? It's kind of funny. I've almost had the equivalent of that conversation in the past, like at winter meetings when I'm actually in person with these people, uh, <laughs> there, there, there are some of them that are like sort of ostensibly friendly with me and then sort of take me aside, we get a beer and they're like, man, yeah, there's just a better way to go about it, Craig. And, you know, oh I'm like, oh. play the game the right I, way, man. <laughs> exactly. There's a play the game the right way. And, and I get why I'm not trying to make this about me, but I mean, there's some resentment and this, this tails back into the whole different modes of media thing we were talking about. Yeah. There is a, there is a ladder for reporters too. It used to be you, you strong high school football, you, right. uh, you know, you, you did other things. Maybe sure. you then eventually get up to do another sport. Then you're a beat writer for the sport. And then like your gold watch is, you know, when you're 45 or 50, you get to be a, co- a columnist after 20 years, you finally get to offer an opinion in print. 
And a lot of people <laughs> get mad at we've me been because doing that for three years, could we have no credentials? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the fact that I did it and I'm doing it for a media company with what they perceive to be zero experience or knowledge or anything is, is kind of galling to them. But the idea is reporting is a fundamentally different skill set than opining or editorializing and anyone can have an opinion you just have to be smart (laughs) and well-spoken so there is a lot of cultural problems in media too yeah and it's interesting i i often bemoan a lot of the trends in political media and spend a lot of time thinking about that and worrying about that but that is one place where i feel like the proliferation of voices has sort of like killed that particular thing there's not so much the you do it the right way you have to kind of come up there is a lot more of a of a of a democracy of voices in political media because people are so concerned about the scandals that people have been able to unearth. Different yeah. set of problems, but interesting. So talking about this sort of marketplace of ideas and all these people who can kind of come at you constantly, you've noted a number of times in the past that Orioles fans can have a propensity to be somewhat, shall we call it, sensitive <laughs> <laughs> about criticism of our team. To which I think we'd like to collectively say, no fair, you're mean. Um, but <laughs> you know, since... it's gone away. It's oh, really? Gone down a little, not, not completely, but it's gone down. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, the Orioles have been successful the last couple of years. and uh, Chip is coming I, off the shoulder a little bit? A li- little bit, I think so. There, there is this thing, certainly when I started out writing in you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, where... Blue Jays and Orioles, and to some extent Rays, right before they broke through, fans definitely had an understandable bit of a peak at the Red Sox-Yankees domination of the AL East. I mean, and I get that. that it, it definitely felt like for a while they were playing the same game. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think a, a sort of bunker mentality kind a of set version in. version of the same game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think a bunker mentality sort of set in. And so... When the Orioles started doing well, what was that, 2012? Was that the year they sort of broke yep. through? Oh, yes, okay. indeed. So 2012 happens. You know, I don't think I ever on the blog or whatever said, ah, the Orioles suck. I mean, I think it, what I said was, this might not be sustainable year by year because, you know, what they're doing is a function of some great bullpen work and Buck Schulter's doing a master, masterful job. And, like, historically speaking, this kind of thing fluctuates year to year. And same conversation people had about the Royals last year and everything. And a lot of people just took that as, you're disrespecting the Orioles. And it was, like, kind of crazy. It was, like, out of nowhere where it got to the point that every morning I do my little recap thing. And uh, I, I do the scores from all 15 games the night before, and I write two or three sentences about what happened. And I don't have any hierarchy for it. If there's a huge <laughs> high. If there's a huge highlight or something, I'll maybe put that one to the top so I have a good picture. But generally, I usually just go in order of where I see the box score and I write them down. I was getting Orioles fans, and they're the only ones who have ever done this, say, you got the Orioles like eighth today. Why isn't their game higher? Like as if it was a power ranking. Exactly, the like, intrinsic power rankings. I don't which know if you noticed, you saw first. but we are in the playoff chase, sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like... I'm like, really, you know, you played a West Coast game and the box score literally is on the bottom of the NBC box scores on the little page because they put it in the order. Stats Inc. puts it in the order that the game starts, what start time and everything. So that's why it's like 14th and not second. And they're like, oh, God, disrespect. I'm like, OK, but that has gone away. I, I will be fair. That has gone away a little bit. It was a dark um, 13 years. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I definitely understand. I, if Look, if if there were blogs around and everything in 1991, I would have been all over the place telling people that they were disrespecting the Braves and oh yeah 
And they had every right to do it, actually, until like 94. Well, and not to not to belabor this point too much, but it does seem interesting to me that, again, you know, you found yourself in a situation where you were making what you felt was sort of a, a reasonable, nuanced point and not making any kind of ad hominem attack in any way whatsoever in terms of talking about uh, what might be behind the Orioles' success and suddenly found yourself getting this giant blowback, which mm-hmm. I think, it, you know, it just speaks to the sort of general tenor of the way these conversations around sports and politics, as Alan was saying, go and how we as a culture still haven't really decided how we're going to handle all of this. We're, <laughs> all well, this and access we're still, is weird. And we're, we're still very tribal. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think that people forget how very tribal we are. And just look at any sports controversy that happens. The most recent one that I think is hilarious is the deflate gate stuff. I don't follow football too much, but you can't avoid the deflate gate stuff. Sure. There's, there's a guy who used to be a partner at the law firm that I worked at back in the day, and I'm still Facebook friends with him. And now he's got a very successful criminal law practice in New York. He is, uh, he is brilliant. Um, he, he's a Patriots fan. And the degree to which this brilliant, experienced attorney that I know has completely gone loopy. It's in the bunker. In the bunker. to, And not like frothing at the mouth, oh, you hate the Patriots. Like he's, con- he's convinced himself that he's got this logical, scientific-based argument that, that, yeah, everybody's out to get the Patriots. And it's and, like... And deflation means that uh, the guy... The guy's losing to weight. Losing weight, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great. ridiculous. It, you know, so with sports, in any sports controversy that you find, the number one determining factor of where someone is going to come down on it is how it affects their fandom. That mm-hmm. is it. And, you know, we dress it up. We try to act like we're not talking like that. I find myself party to that, too. We really are just rooting for our laundry and, and identifying with our tribe. And we do that with politics. I mean, it's amazing. These Ivy League-educated people who just time after time after time again, using their reason and their intellect, just conclude that the party that they belong to happens to be right on this particular issue. It's just, <laughs> it, it, it happens in sports. It happens in politics. It happens with everything. And yeah. you, know, you just take a step back and realize that we're all just grubby apes beating on each other with bones next to the monolith, and that's basically what's going on. That's our pull <laughs> quote. All right. <laughs> Since you are talking about and we're talking about this crossover between politics and media and sports and how all these things fit together. We're wondering if you have any thoughts on how the Orioles as a franchise handled the whole situation with regard to Freddie Gray in Baltimore. It's something that has obviously been of great interest to us and our listeners and wondering if you have any thoughts on on how that whole thing has shaken out. I think the Orioles did about the best they could have done in a very tough situation. Uh, I know there are some talk radio folks in Baltimore that want to do, I, I appear on Baltimore radio sometimes and I've, there are some opinionated folks there who want to do, you know, wave the banner for the, field. what about the fans? You know, there's no fans at the game. How can you play a game? And like, you know what? It's so not about the people from the County who could afford season tickets. It just has nothing to do with them. And so that's like the last people that I really give a crap about, to be honest. Um, You know, between what was going on in the city and the tyranny of the uh, unbalanced schedule and the fact that the White Sox weren't coming to town anymore, that's about as good as you can do there. You know what? Both these teams are supposed to be contenders. You got to play the games. I hate that. I hated it, too. It was interesting to watch that game without the fans, but whatever. I've loved what I've seen from the Orioles and their management. 
in, in the stuff not having directly to do with baseball. Uh, with the, the younger Angelos' statement around the time that came out about the social inequality, the, the financial inequality, the things that really drive riots, not the things that people on Fox News say drive riots, but the things that really drive riots. He was right on with that. Right. Um, everybody's got their issues with Peter Angelos, but you cannot doubt the guy's commitment to his city. And uh, that coming through from the organization and through his son has been a, a, a good thing to see. And then the last one I just saw was, you know, they, they decided to pick up the, uh, the salaries for the or the, the hourly wages for the uh, stadium workers and stuff like that. I'm happy to see that, too. I think the Orioles have done a damn good job with that. It's always interesting to when you are a fan of a team that doesn't get quite as much national media attention because no one respects us. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. Let me, <laughs> let me pull it back. Let me pull it back. Um, but when you are a fan of a, a smaller market team, when your team all of a sudden finds itself in the national spotlight, it is always very interesting to see how you're perceived uh, when people decide to pay attention suddenly. And, yeah. you know, obviously there was all that coverage of the way that CNN kept referring to Baltimore as, you know, Baltimore is a major American city. Like people had just found out that Baltimore existed. And <laughs> well, then you've got the the screwed up idiot thing of how many dudes that, you know, their entire knowledge of Baltimore really is from the wire. And yep. they actually think they know what they're talking about, about <laughs> Baltimore based on what they see in the wire. Yeah, they're experts on African-American culture because, you know, I've seen the wire. That's got to be <laughs> crazy. I just can't even imagine being from Baltimore and having to fight through that garbage every yeah. day. Oh, That's yeah. <laughs> well, that was something I thought, you know, people were giving David Simon a hard time because he put up that blog post saying, I urge the rioters to go home. And people were saying, oh, David Simon thinks just because he wrote The Wire, he's allowed to he's allowed to tell black people what to do. And I sort of <laughs> felt like, listen, David Simon was able to write The Wire because he was a homicide beat reporter for 13 years, was embedded with police officers and in creating the wire has enabled you to feel like you're allowed to have an opinion at all guy you know yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah david david simon had a little bit of history there before uh, before doing that so uh, yeah i think he's entitled to it too it's like you know i surprised i didn't hear john waters actually i would have liked to hear john waters impression oh, about that, that, that yeah. would have been, <laughs> <laughs> been wild that perhaps that's the dog that hasn't barked yet in this whole conversation <laughs> All right, Craig Calcaterra. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. People can find you and should find you if they don't already on Twitter at Craig Calcaterra. And they can, of course, find your baseball writing every day at NBC's Hardball Talk blog. Thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Listening to Baltimore, it's the home of the all-weather fan. Uh, this here is Alan Smith, and on this side of the desk, Sam Dingman. Very grateful to have you along for the ride, as always, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Huge thank you to Craig, of course, for coming on. Um, and in, if you don't know where he is, he can be found on HardballTalk.NBCSports.com, but also on Twitter at Craig Calcaterra is the handle for your dandle. And if you want to follow us on Twitter and you don't already, I'm always interested to know, are there people who <laughs> listen to this show but don't follow us on Twitter? Are there people who follow us on Twitter but don't listen to the show? That The answer to that is almost certainly yes, because <laughs> I think there are some robots out there. Anyway, we are on Twitter at BeMorons. Our website, BeMorons.com, where you can find our brand new blog, 
which we call Moronic Musings, updated every Tuesday and Thursday. Recent posts have included the case for trading Chris Davis and the curious case of Manny Machado, the leadoff hitter. We hope that you will grace it with your eyeballs in the way that you have graced us this evening with your earballs. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we employed some music on the show this evening, and I'd like to tell you about that. At the top of the show, you, of course, heard the Baltimoreans theme song as written and performed by Marshall York. In between segments, you heard the song Working for Another Song by the band Town Hall. And in between some other segments, you heard the song Birdland by the band Weather Report from the album Heavy Weather. And of course, on the outro, behind the sound of my voice right now, you're hearing the sound of the Black Crows with their song Kicking My Heart Around. Now, Alan Smith, uh, we've asked a lot of difficult questions on the show tonight. (laughs) But there's one question that's the most difficult of them all, and I'd like to put it to you now. All right. What, Alan Smith, would you call Henry Rudia if he was making a clandestine plan with Daryl Alvarez to <laughs> shoot Alejandro Deaza and Delman Young into the sun and claim their rightful places, at least from their point of view, in our outfield. Wow. I have no idea. You would call him Henry in cahoots Rudia. And good night. is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. <laughs>